Welcome back to the Focus on Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Preston. And I'm Jason. Jason, today we're back for round two of, it's kind of a two-part series today, right? Yeah, I'd, yeah, I'd say so. Up until last episode, we hadn't really delved into the controlled environment space, and there's all kinds of aspects of that from just a, a shade cloth in a field to a full-on greenhouse to, you know, what we talked about with Don Taylor the last time, and, and that is the these pods where they're growing plants in a completely controlled environment. And so today we talked to Joni Stepanov, who works for Amplified Ag, about her research and growing crops in these conditions. Yeah, so for the farmers out there who are row crop farming, stick with us. I think you can still learn a couple of things this controlled agro system, if you will, but uh, definitely an interesting concept. And I I don't know, you know, we always talk about the future of ag. And I think that technology like this is definitely going to be a piece of that future. Yeah, absolutely, Preston. I I think that this is not necessarily the future, but as Don and Joni both mentioned, it's it's probably a piece of the future. Uh, When we think about being able to get fruit and vegetables in a northern city in the winter, fresh that's something that hasn't really been a possibility before other than having things shipped in and you know there's a lot of challenges when it comes to shipping for sure so enough from us let's go ahead and jump right into the conversation with Joni. welcome to the podcast Joni. to kick things off could you tell us a little bit about your background and what you're up to today yes my name is Joni stepanov i'm soon to be back to mcguire and i um like a few of the guests I heard you guys interview before grew up on a very small family farm. Somehow my dad uh, raised eight kids on 365 acres in Eastern Iowa. My identical twin and I actually are probably one of a very small group who started taking notes for plant breeders well before we were actually legally able to be paid. We were 11 <laughs> years old um, when we started taking um, corn tasseling and and all flowering notes. We don't we don't want to name any names. We don't want to violate any child labor laws here. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. So so thankfully the name of the company has changed uh, several times. But yes, my uh, my dad grew seed corn and so the production facility there said, hey, you know, we need someone to to do this. And so been taking notes for plant breeders for a very long time. So then I went worked in corn production um, for the same company for several years and of course went to Iowa State, got my undergrad there. And then as soon as I finished, in fact, I still had a few classes I had to transfer back. I was in such a hurry to get out of Iowa that I started working in South Florida in uh, for a small company that does uh, both contract research and uh, scouting for fruit and vegetable producers. So one of the first things I started working on in my career was lettuce, and now I'm back to lettuce. Um, but anyway, so my role not only would be to scout and do recommendations to farmers for a dozen different crops in South Florida, um, I also ran, um, the, I was the principal investigator for all of our contract research trials. So all of the major chemical companies would send us trials, say, hey, I want tomatoes, white fly issues. Um, This is the the protocol. Um, I wanted as close to commercial production as possible. So I was able to learn a lot. And then after that, I went into plant breeding and selection. Um, So I worked for about 14 years with one of the most prolific 
plant breeders I've ever interacted with. Um, had a wonderful experience learning there. And that, that was with Monsanto until about 2017. Um, then I transitioned for family reasons. I moved away and transitioned into uh, farm machinery sales, which was a job I really was not suited for. I'm not a salesperson and uh, three to five cold calls a day is very difficult to do, especially with farm machinery dealers. They can be difficult. And then thankfully, um, just over a year ago, I was able to land my dream job. I get to do not only research with the development of our technology, so I essentially give feedback to both the engineering and build teams on how the design affects the plants. And I get to do some extremely cutting edge technology work. In fact, my research pod that I just transplanted this morning has some things in there that literally were not in existence three weeks ago. So it is it is absolutely brand new cutting edge technology in uh, controlled environment ag. I also support our external customers. So as Don Taylor uh, referred to in your previous podcast, we, we build and sell these containers to external customers. And so I'm, I'm kind of the support uh, liaison um, in order to help them with any plant problems that they have. A main focus was me coming in to help with research with our partnership with USDA ARS. They have a very large vegetable research facility that happens to be here in Charleston. Um, they're co-located with um, University of Clemson. And they started out with buying four research containers, and we are about to deliver the last of 16 total. So that's wow. a lot of research. <laughs> so I, I help them um, kind of understand the, the direction of the research. They're typically all field researchers, um, a little bit of greenhouse, um, a little bit of growth chamber, but um, help them kind of direct, you know, all of the new things with this, this new technology. It's been a very beneficial relationship for us so far. So, Joni, you, uh, I'm going to go way back to what you said close to the beginning. You and I both have a background in soybean breeding for quite a few years. Some people might say, well, what do you do with soybeans? Because it's all about <laughs> yield, right? But um, I, I would ask that question about lettuce. <laughs> it's green. <laughs> it's a leaf. Uh, what, do you, what do you breed? Well, so I don't actually do any of the breeding. I have helped them kind of continue to do plant selection here um, because almost all of the, the, the crops that we grow um, have been selected field and possibly in a greenhouse, which is really not that similar to the completely controlled environment that, that we have. So I have helped um, with my colleague, Ben, who's on our production side, um, I have helped them kind of like reach out and find, you know, even a lettuce cultivar that wouldn't do well in a field might do excellently in, in this environment. But on top of the lettuce um, that our production group does, I have tested probably over two dozen crops in our, our propagation and our NFT or nutrient film technology grow pods. And my favorite so far is edamame. So had some so, wonderful edamame. So what is what are the differences? Why would a plant perform differently 
in a controlled environment like you're talking about compared to in the field? What are the what are the things that um, you know are maybe a negative in the field but a benefit indoors? The biggest difference to me is the fact that we can control the daylight hours. So it's very conducive to vegetative growth because essentially, I mean, we're still testing, you know, to, to, to fine tune it for different crop types and cultivars, but essentially we can give them sunlight usually between 15 and 17 hours a day. Well, if the plant has the, the nutrients and the water and everything necessary, it can do a totally different thing than it would with, you know, the, the more limited daylight hours that most regions in the world have to deal with. And we can do it year round. So, you know, it, like one of my customers in Boston, you know, it snowed, he still has a beautiful crop right there in Boston. So so how about diseases and insects? Because in an open field, you you have diseases and insects attacking those plants. And if that's less of a problem in a controlled environment, uh, you know, there's a cost to protecting the plant against diseases and insects. So maybe you can choose products that don't have those resistances and maybe get more yield that way. Is that accurate? Absolutely true. And and that's one of my biggest thing, me coming more from um, a field and a little bit of greenhouse background. I, I tell everyone every day, we have it so easy in here. So there still is the possibility of um, insects and certainly plant pathogens with the water environment that, that the water touches every single plant. Our cleaning and sanitation processes are extremely important. Once you get Phytophthora in a completely, you know, all touching the same plants or every single plant in there, Phytophthora can get out of control very quickly. Whereas in a field, it, it actually has to move, right? So I, I do tell them all the time, um, my, my strawberries would not look like this, like this out in the field. They would be covered in fungicides and insecticides um, in order to keep them healthy enough to keep producing. And so we do use a, a few things to help mitigate any sort of fungus development or anything in there. We don't have to spray anything over the top of the plants, at least as of yet. I could see a situation where maybe mites or aphids or something could get in, certainly thrips. But the fact that, and I tell, I tell everyone this probably more than they want to hear it here, the fact that we're compartmentalized in individual you know, containers is absolutely outstanding. I have seen it um, when I scouted in greenhouses. I've seen, you know, maybe find three mites in a tomato greenhouse uh, one day and four days later, they've all got it if they decide not to control it. So the fact that we're compartmentalized really does add so much value because if we happen to have a disease breakout, we'll eliminate that one pod and out of hundreds of pods, it's not the end of the world. So it's, it's, to me, it's, it's literally the ideal in, in so many ways and I don't have to fight the weather. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty big benefit. Jody, could you do a little bit of a deeper dive onto your particular research? What does a day in the life look like? Well, just like in a field, it's, it's a lot of labor. Um, and as I mentioned to my boss recently, um, I will never be one of those field researchers that 
don't spend time in the field. So I, I spend a lot of time with my plants. Right now, I run three different research pods. Um, we're looking at potentially expanding to more as we gain capacity for it. And so between all of my, um, a little bit of leafy green work, but most of that goes to my colleague on the production side, a lot of herbs. I've tried some cucurbits, obviously edamame. My biggest research right now is in strawberries. Um, so a lot of the manual labor of putting seeds and, and getting them established, getting them, you know, in propagation, all of the cleaning and sanitation processes um, in order to ensure the system runs smoothly. One of our biggest battles is um, with that much water and that much nutrients. And then on top of that, a lot of organic material like biofilm and algae are a constant battle. So keeping that out is, is one of the things I'm, I'm, I've adjusted to understanding, you know, the difference. I've, I've, I've never had to fight algae before. <laughs> so a lot of the cleaning and sanitation processes. So all of the same things um, that goes into, you know, field research and field production, except I get to be in air conditioning the whole time. So what do you do about algae? You're not, how do you deal with that if it starts to come in? Well, so um, thankfully, as, as Don mentioned in your previous um, podcast, most of our production actually is changed every um, 21 days. And so we're able to send stuff through the system that, that basically takes out all the calcification from the nutrients, all the biofilm, all the algae. It's, it's extremely effective. But in the longer term things, like my strawberries have been in, in channel, we like to say in channel, um, in the NFT channels since July. So I cannot send that stuff through because they aren't, they're, you know, they're plant killers. Um, they would, you know, damage them too much. Um, so to mitigate that as much as possible, any sort of algae buildup, I do make sure that there's no exposure to light where the water is because that's exactly where it's going to build up a whole bunch of algae really, really fast with all that nutrient, all that water. Um, and trying to get it out once you have it in, it's pretty hard. Um, so trying to avoid it from the beginning um, is, is usually the, the best step. There are a few things labeled for it um, in order to remove it from a, a hydroponic system. But some crops are actually quite sensitive to it. So I, I try not to utilize it too much. But it's, it's mostly um, a hydrogen peroxide, right? So not really anything too dangerous, um, but it's, it's very effective. But we are actually, um, with our partnership with USDA, we are looking into um, alternatives to handle these things like potentially ozone, use of ozone. But that, of course, comes with some safety risks a little bit on more the plant pathogen side, um, UV light exposure to the water. And then we're even in, in looking into a couple of chemistries that are so safe, you can actually drink them. So it's, it's perfectly fine for the plants to handle them. But we're going to do, you know, hopefully a lot of that research um, with USDA coming up um, pretty soon. So strawberries, I believe we talked about this a little bit with Don, but you're able to grow strawberries, for instance, year-round, correct? I am. Um, it is still a little early in the process. I mean, I've only been able to handle, you know, a handful of cultivars so far. 
I've got several different treatments of, of spacing and um, pollination. In fact, we're um, going to be working with a company here shortly that handles insects in order to help pollinate in there, which is an, obviously a hurdle with our cucurbits um, that we would have to overcome no matter what. But even without the insects, I, I, I have been able to produce fruit since August and will continue as long as they continue to yield. I'll continue just to see, you know, how long we can go with it. But essentially, I could see it being 12 months out of the year if that's what if that's how the plants react. Interesting. And the insect piece is interesting, too, something I hadn't thought about, that all those crops that are pollinated by insects. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, those aren't going to be naturally incurring it, and and in some cases, insects are brought into greenhouses too, right? They bring in bumblebees or honeybees sometimes. Are are you in a situation where you're bringing bees into the pods? We are. Um, in fact, I am. I'm setting up a meeting either later this week or probably early next um, to meet with a company um, based out in California that that's their specialty. Um, the hurdle that um, we have is that some insects, which I'm sure Preston would know more than I would, um, respond differently to both different spectrums of light because it's not exactly the same spectrum as the sun. And then the daylight hours, right? So um, when we've had beekeepers come in and talk to us in the past about this possibility long before I was here, They said, well, they just don't live very long because they go off of the daylight hours and they get very confused. And even some spectrums, they actually can't see at all. It confuses them so much they can't pollinate. The scientist that I'm working with on that, she said they will literally fly just straight down into the ground because they can't see. (laughs) Mm. So there are definitely some hurdles, but um, that's what's kind of fun and, and exciting about learning about this whole process. Some people are very comfortable with bees. Preston and I are both beekeepers, but uh, the average worker maybe isn't going to be comfortable going into a pod filled with bees. I, I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> so the the neat thing about that is, though, this, this particular company that I work with, and maybe this is more common than I realized, uh, I've never had to hire pollinators before. Um, they actually can train them um, to go into their home by certain techniques. She hasn't really talked much about the the details on that, both with like, I think like pheromones and they've even gone so far as been able to train certain pollinators. I don't know if they were all bees because she's talked about other pollinators as well, that they will pick out, out in the field, they will pick out certain crops and avoid the rest so that they will focus only on the pecans or whatever it is um, that they're trying to pollinate out in the field. So they've They've done a little bit of uh, bug magic out there. So. I have a quick question about taking it back to strawberries real quick. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong, but there's everbearing and June bearing, correct? Yes. Are there so, are the June bearing the type that you guys go for? And what's the shelf life of a plant? Like, can you get multiple picks without having to exchange new plants in? Or how does that work? Very good questions. And so... That is true. The dune bearing, the everbearing, um, I'm sure there's more technical terms um, that strawberry breeders, you know, know better than I do. 
But what I decided to start with just to see where we were at um, was the everbearing because I didn't want daylight hours or basically night hours to affect flowering. Um, so the everbearing was kind of an, an easy first, you know, step of, of trying to test these strawberries. Um, and yes, um, since they're a perennial, um, I think, I mean, as, as long as the plant, you know, survives, I, I don't see a reason why we would stop as far as, unless the plant itself becomes so old that it just doesn't produce as well, then I would probably want to start with new rootstock. But that's another thing I'm testing in my current research um, container for strawberries is actually propagating new right there from the mother plant. Anybody who knows strawberries knows that they send off runners like absolutely crazy. And the thing that makes me the most nervous about rootstock coming from, you know, a strawberry nursery is bringing something into my system that would affect all the plants immediately because, as I mentioned, the water literally touches every single plant. So any, you know, sort of, you know, probably most likely fungal infection or bacterial infection, or even the plant virologist that I work with at USDA has seen evidence that viruses can be vectored through water in hydroponic systems, which scares me to death. <laughs> um, and because strawberries can be very susceptible um, to some viruses. So propagating my own rootstock in order to, you know, continue to, to build for additional production pods has been kind of a focus. And so the ones I haven't pruned um, have gone completely crazy. They sent up runners like four week minimum. So it's a lot to keep up with. So I should definitely be okay with my nursery. Johnny, this really interesting research that you do and it, and your perspective in this space, new agriculture, if you'd want to call it or, you know, how you'd want to look at it. But a lot of people in that area maybe don't come from traditional farm backgrounds, which is, is great. President and I talk about that all the time, the opportunity for, for new people to get involved in agriculture and different mindsets and different expertises. Uh, but you probably bring a little bit different perspective to this space, having come from a more traditional background. Absolutely. And it, it's, it's interesting because um, every time I, I, I talk to my coworkers and everything and, and tell them every day what they've done in the time they've done it with the resources that they have is stunning. I mean, coming from a similar background, Jason, resources well, might be tight, but not quite the same as a startup. And so I, I tell them all the time how amazing it is. But yes, my perspective is slightly different. I also tell them pretty often that it, it feels like a vacation compared to working in the field. <laughs> <laughs> you but, mentioned air conditioning a couple of times. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Like it would be hard for my family to get me to work um, back in the grain bin in the middle of August, you know, cleaning out a grain bin because I'm... Yeah, very used to this this very even temperature environment. So from your perspective, you know, your kind of unique perspective of the the old and the new, so to speak, maybe a two-pronged question, but what excites you about the future of ag and where do you see this type of agriculture going? How broadly adapted do you think it'll be over the next, say, 10 years or whatever time frame you think is appropriate? 
The thing that I have come to realize somewhat recently is that there seems to be this barrier between field experience people and the completely controlled environment people. I remember I started applying for warehouse jobs probably almost 10 years ago. And the responses I got, well, you don't have any controlled environment um, experience. And I said, no, but I (laughs) grow a lot of plants. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think we need to really work on breaking down that barrier between the two, because I think that we can learn a lot from both sides. But I do totally agree with Don, as he mentioned in the previous podcast. This is an additive, right? So to me, this is a way of combating so many people on one planet, we can use non-arable land and make it extremely productive, right? Um, The other aspect of it, and I think Don mentioned this last week, but you can set it right at the distribution centers. So the strawberries literally don't have to be picked all the way green. They can be picked more like pink. And so that totally changes the flavor. Everyone here is astounded at how good my strawberries taste. And I said, it's because you've always got them from the grocery store. So yes, it definitely an additive and definitely um, the fact that we can literally put the food where people are. As long as there's enough land in like Newark, New Jersey to put up, you know, several hundred of these, then the food's right there. So it just lasts a lot longer. The other aspect of it that's very different um, from my perspective in both land and and somewhat greenhouse is this is very scalable. You can start literally with one container, which isn't a huge investment compared to the tractors and stuff that I bought in the past. (laughs) It's way cheaper. (laughs) And then you can continue to build on it. Um, So someone doesn't have to put up millions of dollars to put up a greenhouse right? That's usually, that's a, that's a big barrier to overcome or even buy land or even rent that much land, right? So for it to be something that's very scalable, you can literally, as you make money, you can, you know, add more. To me, it's just a win, win, win in every way. Yeah. This is one of those areas where, you know, you you look at different aspects of ag where it, it, it can seem overwhelming to someone coming you know, that wants to be a farmer, say, the price mm-hmm. of land, the price of equipment, putting up a greenhouse, all these high uh, input costs. But th- there are some areas like this where maybe someone can get in on a smaller scale, someone that's got a passion for doing that, for feeding people, and, and there might be an opportunity. Do you have any numbers or any idea on how long the payback time is on a, on a system like this? Is it something that somebody could get and and be profitable after a couple of years, or maybe you don't have those numbers? Well, so it's it's fairly crop and um, location dependent. As I alluded to a customer that I have up in Boston, that um, wonderful, very young man, which, you know, very young people are kind of the trend that I'm seeing, um, which is exciting to get Mm -hmm. more young people into agriculture. He has a very, very good connection already with a distributor uh, or a grocery store, maybe even a restaurant. I I can't remember his whole clientele that he gets a premium for it. So it, it really kind of is a little bit dictated by the market and a little bit by the crop. Like if you were, if you wanted to implement, say this for tomatoes, because tomatoes are besides the determinant ones, 
are such a tall crop, you wouldn't be able to get as much in there as opposed to something like an herb that's quick growing. You can sell, you know, harvest every week, you know, out of each. So it really kind of depends on the model. But to kind of give you the, the perspective of, of this customer in Boston, we just recently delivered to him and his product has done so much better that he's gotten a lot of feedback saying that it stands up better than his, his previous processes and way better than his competitors. Um, so they've increased his orders. It shouldn't be too long before he's ready to buy um, at least one more, if not another container. So pretty exciting for someone just, you know, fairly young, just getting into this to be able to realize these, you know, this good of gain within a few months, essentially. Yeah, that's cool. Um, it's awesome how it opens up opportunities for for folks like that. Uh, for the folks we do have some listeners that are students and Joni, you mentioned, you know, your diverse background and, you know, from corporate America to the startup world. Do you have any advice for some of those students who are maybe considering an ag career? Um, any, any advice for those listeners here today? Well, it will probably be, be fairly similar to what Don said. Um, don't limit yourself. If you, if you haven't have been classically trained in agriculture or horticulture or anything, you know, related, that doesn't mean there's not room. Um, I mean, most of the people that I interact with uh, on a daily basis have absolutely no classical training in plants. So I do have to give out a lot of advice about, <laughs> about their gardens and their houseplants and, and that kind of stuff. Um, but that just shows you that there's that much room in agriculture, particularly with these, these high technology, um, you know, whether it be precision ag or UAVs or anything, you know, relating to anything like that. Um, there are a lot of, of opportunities, way more than when I came out of um, Iowa State thinking, well, I guess I'm going to work in ag sales. So it's, it's just, it's a very different world um, than it was 20 25 years ago. Well, Joni, it's been great to talk to you here today. We have some information for how to contact Amplified Ag. We'll link to again in the show notes. We we talked with Don about that the last time, but is there any other uh, links you want to give us a way for people maybe to interact with you or, or, you know, if they're looking for advice, maybe not on their gardens, sounds like you get enough of that, but what would you recommend? I am on LinkedIn. And then for more serious inqu inquiries, we can definitely like reach out just to Amplified Ag on um, any of the social medias that we're on. Um, and we can definitely link me up um, with individuals. I think Don somewhat alluded to this. There's actually videos of our farms so you can visualize what it looks like. And they happen to all be of, of all of my research pods. So they're very near and dear to my heart. So I think um, maybe we could share those direct links so people can, can see that. Um, and it's easier for them to see, oh, look, there's pine trees in there. Oh, look, there's flowers in there. Like, so they can kind of understand like the whole scope of, of the possibilities. Yeah, we'll definitely include those links. Sounds good. Thank you for your time, Joni. Thank you, guys. I uh, very much appreciate it.
The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the program hosts or their employer.